When they first heard about this thing, it was crew expendable. The next time they sent in Marines, they were expendable too. What makes you think they're gonna care about a bunch of lifers who found God at the ass end of space? You really think they're gonna let you interfere with their plans for this thing? They think we're... we're crud. And they don't give a fuck about one friend of yours that's... that's died. Not one. I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing. So I say, fuck that thing. Let's fight it. Fuck it. Let's go for it. You're listening to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green. Christian Motzka. Andy Geek Girl. And today we're joined by a very special guest. But before I introduce that very special guest, family, do you know what else is special? Patreon. We got a new patron, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop with these corny intros at some point, but welcome James L. Willis, uh, a friend of the show, new patron. We love having you here again. Nick DeBoer, welcome back. And while I got your attention, uh, I want to read a quick review that we got recently on Facebook from Nolan Eller. And uh, we're going to toot our own horn here. So if you want to miss us tooting our own horn, just go forward 30 seconds. But let the tooting begin. So Nolan says, this podcast is one of the primary reasons I've become so enthralled and entranced by this IP. The discussions are always so rich and serve to only strengthen the narrative and ideas presented in the Alien Saga. Whenever I listen to this podcast, Ellen Ripley becomes more than just a fictional character to vicariously enjoy this journey. She is a cipher that feels genuine and authentic as a human being, and her struggles become synonymous with my own. I want her to succeed in this harsh world she's been disposed to. Beyond her, the mythology of the Xenomorph is truly incredible, one of the most iconic creatures to ever be witnessed in cinema. The underlying cosmic horror that the alien presents is one of the reasons I am enamored by its existence. To sum it up, this podcast not only enriches the lore and the world of Alien, but it also serves as a philosophical beacon for those who are looking to delve into the complexities of this cinematic achievement. So thank you, Patrick, Jamie, and everyone involved in the Perfect Organism team. I hope you will continue to provide our community with these irreplaceable discussions. Nolan, thank you so much for that incredibly kind review. If you want to do the same, it would really help us out. You can review us on Facebook via our page. You can review us on Apple Podcasts via the review feature there. Basically, anytime that happens, we get a little bump in the algorithm, and it helps other people discover us, and it's incredibly helpful. So thank you so much, Nolan. And uh, I believe Jamie has some more Patreon news for people. Yes. Yeah, so because of Patreon, we are we have been asked by Prop Store to host a evening with actors from the film Aliens and myself and Christian. Christian's flying in from Maine, not New Jersey. And we are going to meet up and he's going to stay here at my house in my guest room. And we're going to host, uh, I think it's Saturday. It's July. I don't think I know. It is Saturday, July 11th uh, from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. And it's an evening of discussion and conversation with two of the actors as they are surrounded by the props from the film that they were in. Um, and we are really excited. A lot of this is brought to you because of Patreon. Uh, we just the expenditures that we have to incur. Um, just every every part of this trip, except for the the plane ticket, thanks to Prop Store, uh, 
Patreon is paying us back for. So whether it's an audio drama or it's a live event or whatever, we do what we do because Patreon allows us to do it. So thank you all so much for your support. Yeah, we're really excited about that. And uh, so without further ado, to introduce yet another special person, our special guest tonight is Forrest McKnight, who I know from some fire team and from some conversations for quite a ways back, but this is your first time on the show. So welcome officially to Perfect Organism, Forrest. It is. Thank you very much for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be on the show and pleasure to meet all you fine people. Welcome. And today we are here to discuss... Dr. Clemens from the film Aliens as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of Aliens. Oh my God, I said that wrong. <laughs> so, so this evening we are here to talk about Dr. Clemens from the film Alien 3 as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of Alien 3. Yeah, and this is a character who I know, Forrest, you, you have a special connection to. But before we get into that even, I'm wondering, can you give us, you know, we like when people come on the show for the first time to get a little bit of a taste of their background with the franchise. So like, how did you get into this? And what's your journey been to this date with Alien? Yeah, so my journey starts way, way back. I think when I was five or six. Um, well, actually, it probably starts even further than that. Back before I was born, my dad saw Alien in theaters when he was in university back in 79. He loved it, was blown away by it completely. Um, and then forward to 86 when him and my mom were dating they went to go see aliens in theaters he loved it she was absolutely terrified like she always talks about how terrified she was in the car ride home from the theater that night but my dad always loved it he never got to see alien 3 because it was around the time my sister was born so he wasn't really able to sneak out and go see movies for him and uh eventually when i was born i was like and then I was five or six, him and I were at Blockbuster one Friday. And I was just kind of browsing around for a movie that they were going to let me rent. And I'm in the action section and he's kind of browsing too. And he sees aliens and he thinks, oh my God, not only do I want to watch this again, I want him to see it. And I haven't, I haven't seen alien yet or heard of any of them. And he's like, he passes it to me. He's like, you should rent this. You'd like it you know, convinces me to rent it. And so we get home and my mom sees what I've rented and she's pissed at my dad because she's still scared of it. And he's like, what? He, he picked it out? Like he wanted to rent it? Like, what am I? I can't say no. And I watch it and I'm blown away. And it's something I've remembered since. And there was probably about a three or four weeks in succession where every Friday I'd watch the next alien movie that i hadn't seen yet so after aliens we rented alien got to see that and again six years old friggin loved it blown away by it we got to three my dad hadn't seen three like i said and it was a you know it, it's hard for like a six-year-old to kind of get past the, like the wonder that is aliens and then getting something that's kind of dark and somber but i I liked it. And then as a kid, I loved Resurrection. And they were just always the movies I loved. When I was a kid playing with like G.I. Joes, G.I. Joe was always fighting the Xenomorph. Whenever I like had a toy gun, I was Ripley or Hicks. And I made all my childhood friends watch Aliens, much to the chagrin of their parents, probably. <laughs> but I just, it's kind of been just something I've loved. I got to see 
AVP movies in theaters. And I was still very young when I saw those. So they have a, they, they hold a special place in my heart too, despite the being what they are. Um, straight through to Prometheus and Covenant, you know, I, I love it all, you know, and I love sharing it with people and got deeper into fandom over the years and like the extended universe with everything from uh, isolation to Colonial Marines, the game, some of the graphic novels and everything. It's been a lifelong passion and it's been a kind of a personal safe space in my life. You know, that's awesome, man. And before we get back to alien three, you know, we are recording this. Actually, we're recording this on the 10 year anniversary of Prometheus release back in 2012. How, How does Prometheus sit with you? uh prometheus it you know it it sits on uneasy ground um like i per if i were to rate it out of 10 i'd probably give it a seven at this point it has a big sentimental connection for me i was in high school when it came out and my parents knew i was excited to see it so they wrote me a fake note to get me out of school that day so i could go see it and just sat there in the theater by myself and just I was I was just in awe and then the awe kind of turned into you know confusion oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then a little bit of disappointment <laughs> so that brings us to tonight's topic which is Clemens as played by Charles Dance in Alien 3. And we have been covering Alien, Alien 3. Uh, again, we started with Dylan and we recorded an episode about him, which was ended up being a really fantastic episode. It ended up it was something where I didn't realize we had so much to say about Dylan. And I feel like tonight's gonna be similar. Clemens is a very interesting character. He he, like Hicks, throws that male trope that male like action star on its head he's not that at all so i'm excited to discuss what this character means for all of us and how he sits with us he is only in the film for about half the film is it even half the film i think so just about half the film um and then he's gone but he leaves uh he leaves a legacy. He you do, you don't stop thinking about him in a in a film where a lot of people criticize Alien Three for like nobody you didn't like any of the characters. You everyone's confused. Actually, that's not true. If you're paying attention, there are a lot of characters or a few characters in that movie that um, you journey with and that you get to know and that you can relate to. And certainly, Clemens is one of them. Yeah, I have always. Me personally, I've always really been confused when I hear people say that you know there's no one to root for, there's no one to like. It's a movie populated with incredibly dark characters, quite difficult characters, but I find them all likable in some way or another. How can you watch Charles S. Dutton in anything and not be kind of on his side, you know? Amen to that. Or Charles Dance, for that matter. This this is a movie oh, blessed dance. by two fantastic Charleses, which I think is something that it doesn't get enough credit for. I was thinking as like a little bit of an inroad to this because I have my alien books not in the basement anymore. Um, I was thinking maybe I'd read the way that Clemens is introduced in the novel, which I think gives a little bit of, a, of an insight into what I think is so interesting about him, which is that he occupies a liminal space that no other character occupies. 
in a few ways, right? Not just in terms of his status on the colony, but also as like a proxy love interest for Ripley, as like a character who we may or may not find trustworthy the first time we watch it. He's a character that's kind of like in the middle of a lot of things. And so uh, this is the way he's introduced in the novel. So there, he's talking about, uh, and he being, of course, Alan Dean Foster is talking about uh, Andrews and the way that Andrews perceives his staff. And he says, Clemens presented a problem. Technically, he was a prisoner and could be treated just like the others, but no one, the superintendent included, disputed his unique status. Less than a free man, but higher than an indentured custodian. He earned more than any of the other prisoners. More importantly, they relied on him for services no one else could render. So did Andrews and Aaron. Clemens was also a cut above the rest of the prison population intellectually. Given the dearth of sparkling conversation available on Fiorina, Andrews valued that ability almost as much as the man's medical talents. Talking with Aaron was about as stimulating as speaking into the log. But he had to be careful. It wouldn't do for Clemens, any more than for any prisoner, to acquire too high an opinion of himself. When they met, the two men spun cautious verbs around one another, word waltzing as delicately as a pair of weathered rattlesnakes. I love how uh, Alan Dean Foster is having a good time with this one. Clemens was continually pushing the envelope of independence and Andrews sealing it up again. So I think that kind of gives you a little bit of an insight, which I think, you know, some of that might not be applicable to the film, but into the way that Clemens is really this strange middle ground between prisoner and, you know, non. And uh, I think that's part of what, where his appeal lies is that he's kind of neither or he's sort of both. Was he getting paid? Do you think? <laughs> yeah, that's what I, was, I don't think I, I like, think in the film, he's not. Right. And he's also not a prisoner in yeah. the film anymore. He had been one. So yeah, those are two he, discrepancies. I don't he think served a seven year he's sentence. getting paid or not. I, don't, I think he, in the film, he just says he elected to stay where he was. Um, I would imagine most of these prison colonies need a doctor. That's just, you know, that's fundamental. I would imagine he was getting a salary. Like, why would you stay at a place? Where, then he would just be a prisoner. So, you know, there has to be some type of. I've always thought that too, because. You know, when it's mentioned in the uh, conversion of Fury 161 from an actual prison into just a kind of a backwater work facility that they were allowed to stay on the conditions that there was two minders and a medical officer. So if that's one of the conditions to, you know, kind of the, uh, the group of prisoners being able to stay, like, I wonder if it was voluntary, but also no one else is going to employ me. Yeah, I view it sort of as a a choice, but also like a resignation. Um, mm. he, and he had been there so long, he was sort of resigned to this role. But I think he, like you said, kind of grew. That was that was his life now, right? And that life that was full of regret, that was part of his sort of punishment on himself. Like, what am I going to do beyond this? This is where I am now. Uh, this is who I am. So I always took it as he... It was voluntary, but he probably got, he, he was definitely compensated in some way. Um, but it was more of, this is, this is my life now. And that kind of come, I agree with you completely with what you said about the kind of the resignation to his position. But I always wonder, wondered like if part of the relationship he had with Andrews was based on him receiving an in, receiving a salary as a former prisoner, you know, because and. They know that he has committed this terrible crime, served seven years, and now he's kind of up there in the staff at the facility. I wondered if that was something that caused 
you know, some sort of like argument between the two parties, if that makes sense. Well, I think it's crossing a line that Andrews doesn't like. He wants prisoners to stay prisoners. He wants staff to be above that, to be a, a cut above. And so, I mean, part of it's, it's a power trip. He gets to continuously remind Clemens of, you know, we know exactly what you are kind of a thing. But I do think on some level, Clemens, the, the, that is almost a transgression in Andrews's mind of prisoners aren't supposed to do this. And so it just kind of, it niggles at him a little bit. If I didn't, if I didn't need a medical officer, I wouldn't let you within the light years of this installation, you know? Right. It's like a, a begrudging uh, alliance between the two of them. It's also talking about Clemens It's probably worth noting where the character came from, because of course he existed in previous iterations of the script in various forms and not just the shooting script, but he was like very clearly uh, analogous to brother John, who is like a healer monk in the Vincent Ward script and brother John in the Ward script is analogous to a character in the Tui script called uh, Packard, I believe who is the prison like medic. So it's so in the, so, you know, you have the prison script medic and then you have the Ward script, brother John kind of coming together in Clemens. And I feel like part of what's so cool about Clemens is that he takes like, I mean, you need to have some sort of a care provider in a facility like this, no matter what, like there has to be somebody there who can be relied upon because it takes months, you know, Oh, I, I guess it doesn't apparently take months if they have the afterburners cooking, but, but under normal circumstances, they only get visited every six months or so. Um, you need to have somebody there to provide care. So like, how do you get somebody who would be believably at a prison planet who would stay there at a posting that's so abominable, right? And for him, similar, and this is part of what I think is so brilliant about the character as he ends up being portrayed by Charles Dance, is that he, he like the other prisoners, has chosen this outpost as not only a refuge, but a, a means of de-identifying himself, right? Mm. So like we get the sense, and this is also in the novel, but I won't, won't read any more of that. Um, there's only so many rattlesnake metaphors you can get in a proto-organism <laughs> episode. Um, there were many like indications that he had tremendous promise. And of course he says that in the film, right? He says a man with a future, right? He was considered a, a gifted student. And then he had this horrible medical mishap that was caused in, in part by his own addiction and his inability to do his job properly. So it was like this horrible malpractice situation. And he chose to stay after his sentence was over as a way to, whether that's like a way to wear a hair shirt for the rest of his life or which I kind of feel like it is, or it could just be a way to pr protect himself from temptation, or it could be a way to like stay away from the, although he still has accents, access to narcotics, which we see very clearly in this movie. So uh, I don't know. I think that's a really interesting journey that you have this guy who was so full of promise, who then ran from that promise when he misused it and now has defined himself by the absence of the promise that he once might have had. It's really fascinating. I I think that's one of the things that speaks most to me personally about the character is all those things you just said. Um, like Andy said so so wonderfully, like the resignation in in his eyes and in his actions, it's it doesn't seem begrudging. He on what I see is that it, this is a man who understands completely where he's found himself and what's happened to him. And he's come to terms with it. He's, he's accepted it and he's found some measure of peace in that. And that's what I can, that's what I'm seeing when 
the movie opens, like the assembly cut opens when he's, he's out for a walk by himself and he's, you know, he's not whistling or anything like that. He's just having a quiet walk and you can tell he's deep in thought. He's somewhere else. He's and he's alone. He's in this place of isolation, not just physically, but you could spiritually, he's in a place of isolation, not just because he doesn't share their religion, but because of what he's gone through and what he's experienced in his life. Um, and that Charles dance brings so much to that performance. I, I really can't say that enough. Just the, he speaks volumes with a look. That's the beautiful thing that I love about Clemens. And certainly when he meets Ripley, they're both characters who've been devastated, who have experienced devastation. With Clemens, it's been at his own hand. With Ripley, it's been at the hands of other people and the company. And they meet each other at this very tender moment in their life when they both lost everything and then they find each other. And uh, even when Clemens finds her body in the assembly cut and he picks her up and he's walking her into, uh, like down into the the actual prison area of the planet you never get a male gaze from him you never get him looking at her as something different he sees her as a woman or as a person um and i love that and charles dance plays that so beautifully um the way he looks at her um even when she gets up and he's like you know given the nature of the population i would suggest close that um, they haven't seen a woman in years and he goes neither have i but he says that neither have i uh, Patrick pointed this out in, a, in another recent episode. He says it to us, the audience, quietly. He's not, doesn't do a double take. He's not mm. staring at her. There's obviously a naked woman in front of him. He hasn't seen, you know, a woman in years, but there's just such an eloquence about him. Um, at the same time, I don't get, for me, I don't sense that this man is at peace at all. I feel like this man has living, he's, he's mourning his life. He's mourning a life that could have been, and um, it's it's this sadness that just surrounds him everywhere he goes. And his meeting Ripley was just this. I mean, you can see it that when, you know, that scene where he's putting a shirt on after they had, of course, obviously slept together. There's a little bit of light in him and you don't. And you, he picks that light up a little bit more and a little bit more as it goes on until he meets his death. But it's just a beautiful, nuanced performance by Charles Dance. So when he finds her on the beach and um, brings her inside the facility, I've always kind of thought of that as a strange kind of perversion of that old tradition of um, a groom carrying his bride over the threshold of their new home. I've always thought of that as a it's kind of the alien version of that. He, instead of bringing her into a place of warmth and romance he brings her into into hell basically unbeknownst to him but it's it's very genteel he's like you said he doesn't you know he doesn't kind of look her body up and down he's he's very tender with her he's very gentle the word that always comes to mind is thoughtful he and he's one of my favorites by far his performance but the character himself um, and I find there's always in, you know, there's always this foil for Ripley where there's this chaos around her or there's fear. And then there's always that thoughtful character that sort of grounds her and allows her thoughtfulness to kind of, you know, match with, with his, it's usually a man. Um, but he, like you were saying, Jamie, 
there's this shroud of both regret. He has carries tremendous regret and sadness. And then Ripley sort of lightens him up and you can see it. And I think his performance is so beautiful because you see these moments of lightness. Um, but it's all about thought, whether he's walking alone, you can see him thinking whatever, you know, you can see whenever she tells him a new piece of information or he learns something, he's processing, processing it. Um, and he's not just reacting, you know, he's not quick to anger or quick to emotion. He takes it all in. And I've always, I love those characters because it leaves you wondering, what are they thinking? What's going to happen next? So he's he's by far my favorite um, of Alien 3. And Xander in the chat points something out that I think is important. He says he's very genuine in general. I think that's something that he has in common with Dylan also. And I think with a lot of the characters in Alien 3, is there's a real sense of honesty to them, right? Like Clemens not only comes clean with what his past is, but he explains it in excruciating detail that during, and this is during his residency, he wasn't even like out of training yet as a doctor. You know, he was a young guy and there was this boiler explosion at a fuel plant and he had been drunk at a party and he went and he misprescribed the morphine and killed 11 people, right? Of these 30 something casualties from this accident. And that was like this one moment that is frozen in time that completely defined everything about his life. And in the process of dealing with that, he, of having to serve this seven-year sentence that we meet him after he's already served, he kicked his addiction to morphine. So like we get this character who comes clean with her that not only did he cause the deaths of people, whether or not he intended to, um, but he also was a recovering addict and he's very clear with, with those things to her. He also, I think, serves in other ways as a cipher for genuineness, as Xander points out, in other places in the movie too, that we're, we really need a character to do that for us. The first example of that, of course, is the autopsy sequence, which is just like, I mean, can you imagine imagine that sequence without Clemens in it? Like that would be like unwatchable. I mean, it, it already is essentially an unwatchable thing to, to really, you know, open yourself up emotionally to what it actually represents. Like even now when I watch it, I'm not really thinking about Newt. Like I'm like, okay, it's a body on the slab. I'm not going to allow myself to go. That's like, that's too much. You know, and then I think about it after and it kind of hits me. But with Clemens there, there's this real sense of trust, this like implicit trust in Ripley from the very beginning. And we need somebody to believe in her again, because we as an audience are so reeling from what's just happened and from just how different and displaced she is. And he gives us the grace of that in that moment where he trusts her enough to go out on a limb and to skirt around the truth with Andrews with her there. Um, and that I think is really great. And I also want to say just before that, I, first off, I love Forrest, what you're saying about the carrying across the threshold. We get a lot more footage like that in the assembly cut, which is one of the things that I love about it, right? In the assembly cut, we get to see him watch the EEB crash. We get those beautiful wide shots of him walking along the windswept beach towards it. We get, you know, like a lot of these moments of contemplative Clemens, who is like many of you have already said tonight, very thoughtful. Like he's, he's watching this and he's internally very active as he's considering what this means for the colony. If this is 
going to be safe, but also like without even uh, a moment's hesitation, he helps Ripley to physically heal from what's happened to her from her sickness. So yeah, I think like, you know, Xander, I think you're, you're dead on the money that he's genuine. And it's in the context of a movie that feels like it runs the risk of being non-genuine because it feels so hateful in the beginning. It feels like this movie is just here to punish us. And then he kind of cracks a little bit of light in, you know, as Leonard Cohen said. And, uh, and I think that's part of why he's so loved by fans. One of the other big reasons that he speaks to me so much, me personally, is uh, I, I too am uh, an addict in recovery. Um, I'm, a, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And uh, prior to my uh, kind of descent into my addiction, I was an Alien 3 fan, ma- massive Alien 3 fan. But in my recovery, one of the things that has really stood out to me the most is the character of Clemens. Um, like he's a recovering addict as well, which makes him very easy to identify with. But there's a, a shorthand between him and me now. There's a there's a common language that we speak, and uh, I, I did I tried to do some research before the episodes on Charles Dance to see if. Maybe he had kind of openly struggled with substance abuse as well. I couldn't find anything, but he brings, like, that's the real deal (laughs) that he's bringing on screen. The scene where he um, kind of tells Ripley about his past and um, his addiction to morphine and ultimately what brought him to Fury 161, he kind of has that glazed look in his eyes. He's, He's off reliving those experiences in his in his head and he's recounting it to her in excruciating and honest detail. Um, I've seen that look countless times Um, in times where I would attend an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I've like, I've seen people have that exact same look that Clemens has in that scene where they're back in an experience and they're recounting it in brutal not funny, not flattering detail, and they're being honest, and they're getting it out there to share it and to kind of lift a weight off their chest. Like I've, the first time I kind of, the first time I went to an AA meeting, I was listening to someone speak, um, and they had that look, and obviously my first thought was about their the story that they were telling, and my second thought was. This is a lot like Clemens talking to Ripley. You know, I was the alien fan kind of seeped into that moment. I was like, I feel like I'm on Fury 161 right now. <laughs> so, um, it, that's fun. But it he brings something to the character that feels real to me. Me personally, as someone in recovery, I'm, I'm kind of sensitive to the portrayals of addiction on screen because it's a lot of the time... Hollywood kind of fucks it up for lack of a better term. They don't give an accurate portrayal of what someone deep into addiction looks like. Um, but alien three for, for me personally, that really, that that's an accurate picture of someone who's in recovery and has done things they're not proud of and have found themselves in, in this place where they're living with that. You know, he's, he's kicked, he's kicked the morphine, you know, but those things he did are still there with him. He still did those things, you know, nothing will take that away, but 
there's a there's a power in that giving up, you know, and and that acceptance, that resignation, like Andy was saying, like there's a there's a power in that, and you know, he's he's not triumphant, but he's accepting. At 11 counts of manslaughter, <clears throat> we don't know what what exactly the other um, inmates have done, why they got their sentences, but he may actually have one of the higher body counts in a way. And to only be given a seven-year sentence, the sense that I get is that he he's feeling that's not enough. You know, I like you were saying, Patrick, with the, mm-hmm. with the hair shirt analogy, I think he's determining that he needs a longer sentence and so that he's going to stay and serve however long feels right. And, and so in that time, um, yes, he's, he's kicked the addiction and, and you're right, you know, he has, he has access. He's the only one, you know, he could so easily fall back to that. And so the, the whole experience has to be somewhat excruciating, um, but it's, he's doing this penance almost. And what's interesting is that the the morphine isn't even what caused the, his misprescribing. Like it was, he was drunk after a shift. Um, and so like, so it really, it really was just one of these, this horrible happenstance. Like I get the sense that he had his addiction, quote unquote, under control enough to be able to work. Um, and this was something that he hadn't planned for, you know, and that's kind of all the more tragic for it. And like that, that sense of like, you can never, because the reality is when you, I mean, so he was convicted of manslaughter, right? So he was convicted of not actual homicide, like Dylan was. But he was convicted yeah. of having caused the deaths of other humans, and um, that like you have to live with that for the rest of your life. And again, he was a resident; like he was just starting out. So like, here he is in presumably his twenties at the time, and he has ended the lives of all of these people who might have otherwise survived. Who then like all of the rest of their lives are snuffed out. And so to like go on to live your life knowing that you did that, like I mean, I can't even I can't even imagine how tragic that would be. And like I, I understand, I think why Clemens would want to sequester himself like that because, like, how how do you, you know, I I, I this is uh, I won't give like personal details, but when I was a child, a friend of mine died because he was hit by a by a drunk driver. Uh, he was pulling out of a car dealership, and he was just got his driver's license, and he was like top of the class, like you know, athlete was going to go to a Division One school for baseball, was like already looking at being a fighter pilot, literally a fighter pilot in the Air Force just like full of promise this kid and just so nice we took the school bus together and this uh, guy was driving a uh he was driving like a texaco gas station you know tractor trailer tow truck down this road which we actually live very close to now and i think about this like every time i pass it because i know where the intersection was and uh this guy had like a history of substance abuse disorders and of course this all came out in court after the fact and you know and i don't know i don't know if he was intoxicated at the time i kind of feel like he probably was because he was going incredibly fast down this hill and he killed tim and that's something that like i have lived with that for the you know since that happened when i was a teenager and i have been thinking like what would he have been doing now? like he probably would have had a family and would have been you know serving his country and all these these things that didn't happen and this other guy as far as i know is still alive and was imprisoned for it for a while and there was a huge settlement and uh and like to, i think also about him a lot and i think about him a lot vis-a-vis clemens because like i don't know how you go on living having done something like that. And 
especially if it happened as a result of your intoxication from an addiction that you had been meaning to get to, and it just hadn't happened yet. And you kind of think, you know, one more day, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to get the right help. And yeah, you know, I'll do this next week. Like this is a hard week. I'm going to kind of keep using this week. Next week, I got this. And those weeks add up. And then all of a sudden something cataclysmic happens and there are no weeks left to fix it. Um, and I, I just, I think a lot about Clemens in that capacity, like the, the, the sort of nightmare that he must be living in every day. And again, to Forrest's point, the way Charles Dance conveys that is so, so incredible. And, and having similarly known people in recovery, it feels very accurate to me too. I also think part of what's so interesting is Charles Dance has such like an incredible natural gravitas Right. Like, I mean, everything that I've ever seen him in, whether it be Game of Thrones or King of the Monsters or Alien 3, like he always brings this sense of grandeur. Like he's just somebody that is just, I mean, he's six, he's like six, three, you know, he's just physically imposing and he's so patrician the way that he holds himself, the way that he speaks. And, uh, and it's, he's somebody that, that you can see why people would have had a lot of belief in as a young person. Like you just feel like he's one of these, one of these special people. He can, he can do it. And when you meet him as a medical officer, you're similarly like, wow, he must really know what he's doing. Like, I have so much faith in this guy, even if he doesn't have his lab coat or his, you know, medical coat. Like, I, I know I, I, I can put my trust in him. And then for him to reveal to us what a mistake it was that he was trusted in the first place, it's, it, it hurts the audience a lot, too, I think. A young Charles Dance is he's certainly the one that I would want administering medical care to me. That's a handsome man. My God. <laughs> yeah, to your point, Patrick, I think, you know, the phys obviously the physical prison is uh kind of secondary to the prison he has probably created in his mind since this event, you know, and that's why I think Ripley trusts him almost immediately, aside from the fact that he's the one being kind to her and 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 helping her medically. Um she senses, she knows that she knows he's different from these other prisoners in that he didn't with intent do this, even though, like you were saying, Christian, like he, he probably has more victims than who knows. Right. Um, but there's there's always that intent behind it. And I think she sees the fact that he's regretful when her experience up to this point has been these faceless people that she sees on screen or she sees at meetings, not giving one fuck about human life. And she can see that he cares of the lives that he was responsible, ultimate responsible for ending. She sees that he cares and she's always drawn to that. You can tell she's drawn to that empathy, that concern for human life that he clearly has. So the first introduction I ever had to Charles Dance was when he played Eric, the title character in The Phantom of the Opera. And it was a miniseries on ABC or NBC back in 1988. I remember when it was on TV. And it's a different version. It's more of a, uh, it's an amalgamation of uh, Gaston LaRue's book of The Phantom of the Opera. But he plays this character with such gravitas and uh, emotion. Uh, the, the character he's playing is, of the phantom is it's a very um he's a very affected character he's not just physically disformed but he's internally disformed too um but and i remember seeing him in that role and feeling like 
an emotional pull to him, but it was because of how he was portraying the role. Like it was just phenomenal. And I think what we're talking about when it comes to Clemens is he's a man who hasn't forgiven himself. And you know, people, uh, people who tend to struggle with substance abuse, and I come from a family full of them, tend to, the substance abuse is a placeholder for their unforgiveness of themselves. And so instead of forgiving themselves, they medicate and they medicate and they medicate and they medicate to hopefully wash it away. And it doesn't might for a minute, but it ultimately doesn't because you have to really forgive yourself and you can feel it in the role of Clemens in the performance of Clemens, that this man does not forgive himself. And that is the worst prison that you can be in. Even the prison of of regret. Um, I'm not someone who's I've never lived with regret. I don't regret anything in my life except for maybe one thing. Um, And I've never been, someone who's like, oh, I regret this and I regret that. It's never been a part of who I am, but I can imagine holding on to something that you can't let go of, which is, and of course with Clemens, I'm not even saying like, oh, he just needs to forgive himself and move on with it because that's the death of 11 people and their families have to live in that, in that um, aftermath for the rest of their lives. It's a big thing. At the same time though, he does have to forgive himself. And it, it is a, because he, you know, he is alive and he still has his life and there are things that he can do. And what's interesting about his character is he's the first character in the Alien, the canonical three films, which, I, you know, I, I don't count Alien Resurrection. It's a different person. Um, he's the first person where I feel like Ripley is unfair to. I don't feel like that with her, anybody else except for him, where she's not telling him what's happening. She's keeping it from him. He asks her on several different occasions what's going on, and she bats it off, or she says, "Oh, I had a dream when I was in hypersleep," or um, you know, or she's like, "Well, you just think I'm crazy." She's she doesn't trust him, or she doesn't be, she doesn't trust him enough to hold her her own truth. And I remember when I first saw the film, I remember thinking, "Come on, Ripley! Like, this is the man you want to trust. This is the man who's here for you." like Hicks was here for you. This is, you know, this is another person put in your path that cannot be, but she just didn't trust him. And then he ends his life. And that's a tragedy for him as well. And um, I liked that. I I, I liked that she was distrustful of him as even with her character, um, because she's been through a lot too, where she's got to this point. She was like, I don't, I don't give a fuck anymore. Like maybe I should trust him. Maybe, but I don't know how long this is going to last. And, she knows the pecking order of this prison. And I think she knows that telling him isn't going to matter. It's telling Andrews, Andrews. Yes. It's telling Andrews. That's who, who matters. And of course she ends up telling Andrews what's happening and they scoff at her and they're like, okay, whatever, you're crazy. You need to go back in the infirmary. Um, but the one man who probably could have maybe had something done, she didn't trust. And it bitter a little bit, it bitter in the ass a little bit. She's been burned by trusting so many people. Mm-hmm. So I didn't blame her one bit for, like you were saying, like we, we've said this so many times, but this is the movie where she doesn't give any fucks because she's learned every time I put my trust in somebody, I either, they either, you know, screw me over or they leave me and they're gone. And I think there was a little bit of fear there too, where if she did start trusting him, he'd be another one either doing one of those two things, right? Which ultimately he does. He does leave her, you know, he dies. Yeah, her reticence to be 100% open with him feels so human. It 
I think it makes sense given what she's gone through. I, I find it frustrating too every time I watch the movie. But it that being her response to the events of the first two movies, I think makes sense. It's it's imperfect, much in the same way that she is. Um, you know, she, she, you know, I think about this all the time. Like, what ha- what would have happened had she kind of like given him the whole spiel that she ended up giving uh, Andrews, like the it's an eight foot creature with acid for blood. You know, would he have gone into that meeting too and backed her up? You know, what could have happened? Um, but she she didn't. And she, I imagine she probably lived on the events of the movie in with that regret. You know, she's very, you know, she's very human oriented. You know, she considers the those around her, I think. So I imagine she probably feels some regret. I don't know. What, what do you guys think about that? Does she... Does she regret not having opened up to Clemens more? I don't even think it crosses her mind. She's just surviving at this point. She's lost so much. I don't even think you can almost when when you when the alien attacks Clemens and it has him in its hands and it, you know there's a thing with his forehead. You see her. They cut to her reaction. And she kind of turns away and she's upset. But then she's boom. She's like, okay, the aliens here. Nothing else matters. Where is this thing? And then of course she finds out she has one inside of her and even more so she just she just doesn't give a fuck she's just i'm at the end of my life here um i i i I wouldn't even i don't even know if she would have even thought of clemens by the end of her her story and then because so much is going on she's in pain physical pain at that point um she's met with the company you know representatives of the company to possibly get the thing out of her they're trying to kill it. They're trying to trap it. I just don't even know if Clemens was a thought for her after that, maybe in a couple of quiet moments, but yeah. Cause there's that scene in the assembly cut when they're prepared, when they're kind of like, um, I don't know, bathing the corridors in a quinitracetylene where uh, Dylan says, you, you missed doc. Right. And her only response is you've been looking through some keyholes, you know, it's like a, it's like kind of a cheeky moment between those two. And at that point in the movie, Clemens isn't really in our minds at all. Like he's the second half of the movie. You forget that he was even in it. I find not to say that that character isn't strong, but I think you're right, Jamie, like she's moved on, you know, because she has to, to survive. She has to, if she lingers, I feel like if she lingers, she, she will lose it emotionally. And we've never seen, I think Alien 3 is the only time, and we've all had this discussion before, where we see Ripley as a shell of herself. She is not the same Ripley that ended Aliens. She's a very different person who's lost everything. And uh, I think she probably even knew that Clemens probably wasn't going to be around very long. She just knew it instinctively, which is probably why she slept with him, just to have a little bit of uh, enjoyment in this life of hell that she lives. Yeah, I always took that moment... um between the two as her just like clinging on to feeling something without having to feel anything. You know, it was like the physical, I just want to experience, I just need some release. And there was no emotional investment because in the previous movie, she did invest emotionally in these two people that you just saw minutes before she had to watch, you know, their funeral 
And at that point, I think that was the death of her caring at all. Like that last year was like, this is the death of my emotional investment in anyone at that point. She just wanted to feel something physically. I don't think there was anything emotional. I mean, yeah, she it, w- it wouldn't have been with any other person other than Clemens because there was a warmth to him. But I don't think there was any emotional investment there. I think she's just deflecting his questions again. She's running out of ways to not answer the very, very obvious questions. And so she goes for the atomic option. You know, do you find me attractive? And then after they've slept together, she gets new ammunition by seeing the barcode on the back of his neck. And that's her next tactic. She's always putting a divider um, either between them or a distraction to keep him from asking these questions. I don't, the, the, it feels very cold and it's such an odd choice since there isn't even, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful there isn't a, a sex scene in the movie, but do you find me attractive in what way, that way, boom, now we've had sex. It's just weird, but I, I do. And he calls her on it. He says, you know, you, you were deflecting from my question, but. Can we imagine the early nineties music video-esque sex scene for that? <laughs> That's what's in my that, head right now. That like, wasn't how filmed, weird would like, that be? Like soft well, R&B playing over them, like making love in his cot, you know, and like a take my breath away moment. Fincher would have never done that. First of all, I actually thought about the sex scene myself (laughs) thinking, and I I mean this completely authentically. How does Clemens make love to a woman? Like he's such a soft, tender man. Like he's so, um, and I think part of it is because he's British where they have that they have a um, British have this veil of politeness about them where they're overly polite. They're overly effusive. Um, But I, not that I was thinking like, Oh yeah, I wonder how he's fucking her. I wasn't thinking that, but like (laughs) what kind of love making he like, what kind of lover he was like, what that was like for them Um, where, because Ripley is pretty dominant with him from the beginning. She's the one who's like, I've been out here a long time. She's, she's like, she's horny. She's ready to like have some fun. Um, and he's demure and it, which brings up this, the, this topic about the men in these films. And we've discussed this before in terms of Hicks, in terms of Dallas, where traditionally women are in these roles where women are demure and when we're like, and the men are kind of coming on to them and the, the women are like, Oh really? You know, but Clemens has that role in this movie. Clemens is demure. He's softer. He's quiet. He's softer spoken. Um, he's a little bit coy. He's a little bit embarrassed. And these types of things weren't happening in movies, but they were happening in the alien films. And it started with Dallas and Ripley being very dominant with him, even though he was the captain of the ship, Ripley commanded him in some ways. Like she was demanding answers from him. And then in aliens, Ripley was the dominant force, not because she not because she was trying to take control, but they needed her to, they needed someone who had a, had a steady hand and that was her. And um, what's his name? You know, was incompetent. What's um, Gomer. Gorman. <laughs> Gorman. Gomer pile. Yeah. <laughs> or Gower. Gomer. Um, uh, Gorman was incompetent and right away and they knew it. And she kind of took over. And even when she did take over for all intents and purposes, Hicks could have stepped in and said, okay, I got this, but he didn't. He let Ripley have control in a way where he wouldn't fight her about it. He didn't do that 
machismo, like who the fuck do you think, you know what I mean? When in, in movies or in shows, when women are vying for a position of authority where they're met with men who are very toxic, who are very uh, just kind of gross people, people like Burke, but Hicks, Hicks played really well with her. He really understood her role and he let her, and he was very tender with Newt. He was very loving. We've discussed this before. And then you get to alien three and Clemens is a version of that same thing. Um, even the way you can see when he's wiping the, um, the dirt off of her face with the, the cotton ball, there's a way his body language is, um, which is not typical men in these movies in action films or in, in films in general, men are much steelier men are much, or if they end up being soft, they end up being ridiculed for it by other men. And that doesn't happen in these movies either. And Clemens wasn't ridiculed because he was soft-spoken. He was ridiculed because he used to be a prisoner. Um, and I just loved that. And I don't think maybe until Alien Covenant, um, where you we meet Walter, who has that affectation, who's softer, who's quieter, but it's probably programming, so who gives a shit? Um, but Clemens really takes that that male, I don't know, that that male character in the alien films and takes it further. And he's even, he's probably of the three of between Dallas Hicks and Clemens. He's the one that's probably the most traditional female. And it's amazing to see a man in that role. Yeah. If you look at scene, like the physical scenes, um, even though you're a hundred percent right with each one of those three men sort of taking the more traditional an alien, you still see Dallas like protecting her. Right. In Aliens, you see Hicks like throwing his body uh, and mm-hmm. like, protecting Ripley and Newt physically, right? Or jumping through the window to get them. In this one, when you like the post love scene, you see them kind of in the spooning position where, where Clemens is in the typical female position and Ripley's behind him. So it even takes it one step further physically, more so. Um, than that. I've always noticed that juxtaposition. They've always tried to frame it. And in that one, she wakes up, his back is to her and she's in the more dominant spooning position, if that makes sense. Yeah. That, that scene, like you guys said, it, it, it is a really interesting kind of, kind of role reversal or just kind of turns those um, stereotypes on their head a little bit in a time in, in movies where, if a female character um, expressed her sexuality, it was usually a loss of innocence or it was signifying her as the slut character. And she was going to die. She was going to get what was coming to her. Um, But that this film doesn't do that. She has a sexual experience and there's no loss of agency. Um, And there's no sort of, I mean, us having this discussion is one thing, but really in the movie, there's not, a questioning of her motives do you know in that moment really and yeah he's he's the one who's kind of more quiet he's turned away from her he's who knows what he's thinking it you know and he's not the one who initiated um it between the two of them he was on the receiving end of you know kind of her advances so it's an interesting it's an interesting reversal and like you said Jamie it's you know at time in movies where we weren't seeing that you know, I think that's worth note. And in a in an environment that's so, you know, outwardly heteronormative, at least in terms of the fact that it's all like these men who 
you know, very clearly present as like what we consider meant to present as. And it just feels very like, you know, like, I mean, they're not like macho, but you get the sense they're kind of tough guys who might have been learning more than that, but they're still like, there's a real toughness at the heart of it. That flexibility that Clemens presents is really beautiful and really needed. I think, I mean, one of the first things we see him doing other than carrying Ripley from the EEV, depending on which version of the movie you're watching is, uh, is like standing guard outside the, uh, you know, bathing area while she's getting shaved or while she's shaving. Right. Like we see him frequently as this like soft barrier between her and the other inmates. Also, he's the only one that has like quote unquote access to her because of the nature of his position and the nature of trying to keep her sequestered. But in that environment though, there is no strong arming going on. He is not trying to coerce her. As so many of you have said tonight, there's a beautiful, and as Xander said, also there's a beautiful, genuine, like, what you see is what you get with him. And what you see is somebody who clearly is there respectfully and is finding somewhat of a refuge in Ripley. And I think what is interesting, like, sure, they both wanted to get some fucking, and let's be clear about that. Like, you know, that's fine. <laughs> but like, but at the end of the day, what I think what we really see is like two ships passing in the stars at a brief moment in time, like two lives that have become defined by trauma that they've experienced and disembodied and you know dismembered from their entire past you know we see ripley who now is six decades removed from anything that she knew is in this complete weird part of space by an act series of accidents and a series of near-death experiences like jamie you said you know she has an instinct that clemens is going to die i think i think that's true but i think she has an instinct that everybody's going to die. i think at this point she has lived through the inevitable death of anything that she cares about you know, she lived through her daughter's death. She lived through her new nuclear family's death. She lived through the death of an entire platoon of, you know, soldiers that were there to, to, to save her. Um, she's lived through the death of her crewmates, et cetera, et cetera. So I think she views everything as this almost Buddhist state of like everything is in flux and everything is and isn't at the same time. And at this particular is and isn't, she and Clemens met for a beautiful moment that had nothing more to it than a human connection. And I think that's why we don't see the fetishization, <laughs> I didn't say that right, the fetishization of that sexually. Like we don't see, there's no like longing butt crack shots. Like we get an alien resurrection. You know, there's no, uh, like there's no male gaze like like has been already brought up, I think by Jamie tonight. It's just, it's just, we, there's this implication that they had a connection and they, in the process of having connection, they got to bone for a sec, which is probably good for both of them. And then they pass and it's not this big, you know, oh, my soul is crying out for love with the, you know, we don't get any of that because like we get the sense that Ripley's potential for that probably died with Hicks. So this is just a moment of, of human connection. And I think that the warmth that Clemens presents throughout the whole film is really important. One other thing I want to say uh, briefly, you know, I, I'm curious and I want to get all of your thoughts on this actually, but we were talking about how Ripley is continually rebuffing him, not rebuffing his advances, but rebuffing his need to know what the fuck she actually was looking for. Um, Cause it's clearly not tuberculosis, right? Uh, we don't get a, a cholera. real cholera. Yeah. Cholera. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> not, not tuberculosis. Um, we don't get a real, like a, a real forcing of that until Gallic comes back. Right. Who has been like, has seen this thing with his own eyes. And at that point there's no denying it anymore. And so we have like this entire, you know, five eighths of the film where Ripley is just avoiding actually explaining what's going on. 
to Clemens, who at that point at that point has earned very much the trust of the audience, but I I think the trust of Ripley as well. So, what are some of your thoughts on like why she just won't tell him? I think because she the the what she shares with him is absent of any alien at that point. Every everyone else she's had an experience with the the creature, her experience with that, and has been um, infected with the alien. It 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 kind of surrounds it. And it's in the middle of it. Whereas with Clemens, for the time, their experience together is completely outside of the experience with the creature. It is, it is nuclear in and of itself. She's met someone. Uh, now the, the alien might be present, but that's only a might. We don't even know. Whereas most of the time, like with Hicks, with with her crew, like with the Nostromo, the aliens are already there, and everyone knows it. Where. In Alien 3, for a lot of the movie, it's just a maybe. We don't really know. Um, Things are kind of happening, but on such a small level, because accidents happen anyways, she's having this experience with him that's completely unadulterated. And I feel like she almost wants to keep it that way. We're going to take a break and be right back. We all remember that moment. The first time we heard a theme from our favorite movie. How it stayed with us. Comforted us. Stirring our imagination. Sublime Noise is our Patreon-exclusive film score review show. Starting at just $4 a month, you will gain access to Sublime Noise, as well as our Warehouse of Framerate episodes, where we discuss and review our favorite films. To sign up, go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support I think she's broken and untrusting she recognizes him for kind of what he is but I don't know if she really sees much use in him I think she I think she sees him as a, a person you know when he when he tells her his story she she sits there and listens and contemplates it but she's just kind of she's lost everything you know she she has no place for him you know she's kind of she's in a place where she's beyond those wants you know her goal is survival and to you know to kind of triumph over the beast you know i i i I just think she ripley's beyond that at this point she's single-minded in this I think it's just dictated by the script. I think that <clears throat> they did not want to have multiple scenes of her explaining the, the, the previous two films and they go for the, well, let me get this straight. And then, you know, it's a, it's a, a bullet list of, of a bullet points of, of what has happened. And if you're going to give that to someone, I do actually think it's better for Andrews to say it because Clemens would have believed her. And, th- and what does that actually gain us? He can't actually do anything to help. And so I think that the antagonism that Andrews shows her is worth more than the support that Clemens might have offered before then still, you know, dying as Marion Crane death. Um, but the script isn't up to the caliber necessary to, to carry that for as long as they drag it out. He keeps asking, she keeps deflecting. And because we as the audience already know all of this, it, it becomes frustrating. Yeah, I think I think you're both partly right because you're right. I definitely think um, we kind of had to keep the him not knowing, right? For maybe that scene to happen, 
um, you know, the, the sex, the non-sex seemed to happen. Um, because if he did know, if she did tell him that would be the mission, right? I think it allows for a little bit more character development in not knowing so that she does form this relationship because otherwise it's just survival, survival, survival. And so I think it does it while it's frustrating, I think it allows for us to see some sort of relationship form, which I think is so necessary for this film, because that's one of the complaints that you were saying. We don't know these people. They're all kind of the same. And if, you know, he if he knew about it, he would just be in that lump of, oh, they all know about it and they're all the same. And I think it allows for her to be human a little but a little bit longer before they, they're going to fight mode yet again. Um, and it gives her that it gives us, we need those moments. I think, you know, we need those relationship building moments, even if it's fleeting, even if you're right, I think she thinks they're all going to die. I think, you know, she's in survival mode, but not really. Cause I think she knows she's going to die. And I think she's almost resigned to that from the get go. So, but I think, I think those moments are so necessary. Which brings me in terms of dying, which brings me to, as we kind of head towards the end of this, episode um of course clemens dies and it feels sudden i mean it is sudden but he doesn't live nearly as long as dallas or obviously hicks who makes it out of aliens um only to die in alien three but did hicks die too soon for you guys what do you think did hicks die too soon i'm sorry clemens? did clemens <laughs> okay. die too soon for you guys hicks you definitely think? died too soon for me <laughs> <laughs> um i i personally feel like clemens outstays his welcome i think he should have if you're if you're not going to have the character continue really? to the end oh yeah i but i'm critical of the movie i just um but why, it, why does he outstay his welcome because we're, we're given too many of those examples of he wants her to tell him she won't tell him and it's a frustration for the audience because we do know the reason and and i you know this this film takes it keeps going in these circles instead of actually progressing we don't get on the rails and start this ride because Ripley, you go back to, you know, the infirmary and stay there. And then she wanders off Ripley, go back to the infirmary and stay there. And she wanders off and just come on. Um, and, and his, yes, he's sympathetic and yes, he's nice. But once you know that the film has it out for him, I would actually rather that he die. And, and we, we get more screen time with characters that we're going to have for longer. I would love way more time with 85. I'd love more time with Dylan. I'd love more time with Golic, honestly. So let me, let me be devil's advocate for a moment. And by devil, I mean, David Fincher and everybody else involved in the film. So I, I do hear what you're saying. And I actually have a, I do have a, a, a filmmaking bone to pick with him, which I'll say before I get back to my devil's advocate part. So I think what Clemens does, which is unfortunate and is a hallmark of lazy writing is he becomes most agreeable to the audience right before his death. Like Micah and I have this game we play whenever we watch anything where we're like, oh, that character's good. Okay, it's gonna die. Okay. Because they always do something sympathetic or they reveal their backstory and you feel bad and then they get killed off. And it's just like, I mean, Walking Dead, Walking Dead is a living case study in this because you can count like on by clockwork if a character becomes likable all of a sudden yep. or more likable within three minutes, they will be killed by something, usually a zombie of some kind. But then um, you have to watch Walking Dead. <laughs> That's true, which in a way is like a slow death itself. Um, but by this point, but uh, so, so Clemens does that, right? Like, uh, unfortunately, we finally get his backstory and Ripley finally comes clean and we finally get resolution. 
it, he does commit a problem to my mind in that way. That being said, I think Christian that the the continual delaying of this explanation is is intentionally frustrating for all of us. But I think it's what the, the reason why I think she demurs so much so many times with him is because she almost feels like if she says it, it's going to happen. She almost feels like at this point, what good is there anyway? I might as well just pretend like this isn't even happening anymore. Like I, I know that we're fucked and it's just a matter of time. So her continual delaying of it to me is like her trying to hold on to this mirage that's that she has that like at the ascent of the universe, they're, the ascent of space rather <laughs> correcting that uh, there might be some glimmer of normalcy left. And then it's ripped from her just as it becomes, you know, I don't know. I, so, so, so to me, like I, I get why from a storytelling standpoint, it's problematic, but I, I do think again, like a lot of other things with alien three, it's kind of a matter of perspective and whose head you're watching it through. And I think for me, I'm very much watching it through Ripley's head and I'm watching it through her experience, which is, um, like, I don't want it to happen. I'm just not going to, I'm just going to keep this straight up for as long as I can. And, uh, you know, hope it lasts. Yeah. But she, I, but God, you go Andy. I agree because I think we've all, we've all gone through things where at some point we're like, you know what? I, I, I can't deal with this right now. Like she just wanted to not talk about it or deal with it. And, and because she was sort of regulated to the room there, you know, she did sneak out. She did go ask Bishop, a, a fine Bishop, and find out about it. And when Clemens was with her, this was her moment. Like, I just, I don't, I can't do it. I can't do it for so long, right? She's like, you've been in my life for so long. I don't know anything else. And that was her moment to just not know anything else. Um, I I totally identified with her because I get like that sometimes where I'm like, Oh, there's this stack of bills on my thing. Like, I, I can't look at it right now. You know, like, especially after like a long day or you've had all of this stuff thrown at you. I, I totally got that emotion. To me, it seemed so real. Like, I just can't. I feel that's where she was coming from. Anyway, go ahead. I, I hear all three of you constructing this narrative where Ripley is trying to create denial. I don't see that. She's sneaking out to get proof. She's trying to learn what's actually going on. And she just doesn't, she doesn't feel like talking about it because he's not going to believe her anyway. He's going to think she's crazy, but she's risking her life to go find Bishop to get the actual evidence, which she then doesn't fucking share, which annoys the hell out of me. But anyway, oh, sorry. This film frustrates me in the way that it's set up because here we are 30 years later trying to give meaningful explanations for why she does this or that. And sometimes it just comes down to this is what the script said, and they did the best they could with it. Um, but I, I, I'll play. I don't know if it's even devil's advocate. I, I oh, it's Ripley. devil's advocate, Jamie. It's fucking yeah. devil's advocate. <laughs> I don't want no more bullshit around here. Ripley <laughs> is in a place she's never been in in the story, and I think she's as frustrated about her situation as we are. You know, she is. She's lost all of the hope that she gained at the end of Aliens. And so I think it's this, it's this cyclical thing. She's at the end of the cycle where it's been wake up. Oh no. Oh no. What's going on. Okay. Wake up again. Oh no. We're going like, and here she is again. She woke up and um, things are hazy. Now this time she's got like that, that uh, the sickness when you wake up from cryo sleep too early and she's dealing with that. 
And so she thinks the alien that's really inside her is probably just the sickness that she's dealing with. I think all of the frustration that you have with this film, and certainly, yes, the writers wrote this film to be what it is. But I think within the context of it, we're asking, does it work for these characters? And for me, this is frustrating. This movie is very frustrating. I think it's frustrating that Ripley's back in this position. She's frustrated that she's back in this position. Here she is again. Even Sigourney Weaver said this at one point when she decided to kill her character or to have her character die, that how many times am I going to wake up and say, oh, there's an alien present? Um, alien 3 is the third time that this has happened. Um, and she's at the end of herself, the very, very end of herself. And I think all of us have been at the end of ourselves in points of our lives. Um, whether it's things that we're dealing with with our family or personally or whatever, or our kids, or I know Andy, you went through it with your daughter when she had that show and you all got COVID. I can't even imagine nothing you could do was good enough for her. She was devastated. And I think we meet Ripley in a, in two plus hours of absolute devastation and it's frustrating for her. And she doesn't know why she, she wants to die. She wants to die. She's trying to die. She tries on two separate occasions to get herself killed, whether it's from the alien or from Dylan, and it doesn't work. So I, and I'm not, I don't know if this like Christian, you will hold alien three in your mind the way that you do, because that's how we do. We all, we all um, interpret things differently, but I feel like what you're feeling about this movie Ripley feels about this, this last journey that she's on. It's frustrating. It's maddening. It's ridiculous. It's devastating. Um, and Clemens for her is that one bright moment away from that. Even you can feel it in the energy when they're together. It's just this calm stillness with them. And she doesn't want to give that up with some with something that she doesn't know if it's really true. So she pushes them and she pushes them. She has more evidence. There are two separate acid burns and she has Bishop. She's never had <laughs> this much evidence to back her up. True. And that's the script gives her. Maybe evidence. she's in denial though. Yeah, it's the script, but maybe she's in denial. You know what I mean? Like but, when but it, there, you could never... be, there could be a reason she still doesn't say it at, at the end. Like, I, I mean, I, I get the sense that she's trying to find this out, not for anybody else at this point, but just for herself. So she knows yes. once and for all, yes. so that she knows whether or not to, to kill herself is honestly what I think the movie is heading towards at that point. Like, I don't get the sense, like, I don't get the sense that she's doing all of this sneaking around to save. She doesn't fucking care about these prisoners at all. She kind of likes Clemens. That's about it. I, I think she's basically trying to figure out if the alien is there. And if so, how can she eliminate it and herself in the process? You know, ultimately that's, that's kind of how I interpret it. No, she, I'm sorry. She's the first person <laughs> that has cared about them, which is, which is part of why they can't stand her is she shows up, she wants to thank this guy for the kind words that he said at a funeral for people that he didn't know. And they're just like, what the fuck? You, you're not allowed to talk to me. I'm punishing myself here. I'm isolating myself here. What are you doing? I, no, I, I, think, I think she does care about them. I think that's, that's the amazing thing about Ripley. And it, and it might even be in direct relation to how little the company cares. That right from the get-go, she is going to care about them, whether they like it or not. And I think that they honestly are, are super upset about it because, you know, they, they are literally intolerable. They, they refer to her as intolerable, but they're so quick to tell, this is what I do to women. Don't sit with me. And she's like, oh, you know, I'm going to thank you. I'm going to thank you for the nice things you said. So I think she is ju just by her nature. She wants to help even these people. 
She, no one else should die by this creature, but she can't convince them because of the script. But see, but I, I look at that interaction <laughs> with Dylan as she's being grateful for the words that he said, but like she, she, uh, to, to me, when she's like sitting with them anyway, she's not doing it out of some deep magnanimous drive to like, you know, save them. She, she's doing it because she's like going to sit at breakfast and nobody's going to tell her what to do. Cause she doesn't fucking care about it. And she's going to thank think that's them. Part of it. Yeah. She's going to thank them because like they did something nice for her, you know, beloved friends that died. But, but, but to me, like to me, the Ripley that we see on screen in this film is just so vividly different from the Ripley's that we've had previous to it. And part of it, I think, is that she doesn't care anymore. And I think those scenes with Clemens, which really are, as you, many of you just said, so there's such respites from everything else going on. And even the way it's lit, you know, everybody, always, I think in our commentaries, probably both of them, we even talked about how cozy the infirmary looks, right? It's just like, it's just this beautiful, simple, gauzy place. And it's just why doesn't she out. stay? Why doesn't she stay and have breakfast in the infirmary? With Clemens, and she's trying to create this little bubble where she doesn't have to think about the alien. She should just stay. She wants right the there. orange juice, Christian. She wants the orange <laughs> juice. Cornbread. So much cereal in there. That's why. So you guys know how at the like Walt Disney World in the Star Wars Pavilion, there's like that Star Wars themed hotel. You know mm-hmm. where you go and it's like a, a ship that no one can uh, afford. That yeah, that no one yeah. can afford. I. I want the Alien 3 version of that. I want to spend a night in the infirmary, you know? I want to spend a night with Clemens. He's so cozy. And if Clemens is there, that's a bonus. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in in, in the interest of time uh, and how late it's getting uh, over here on the East Coast, I I think we do need to wrap. But my, my personal closing thought, and then I'll kind of turn it around to anybody else that might have some, is that we get, in my opinion, the appropriate amount of Clemens to, to answer Jamie's question from earlier, because I think we get just enough to fall for him and to feel bereft. And I think that this, this entire movie is a series of bereavements for Ripley over and over and over again. And as an audience, once again, we, we are cruelly left bereft by the death of yet another character that we finally invest in. And that is what I think gets mistakenly identified, or maybe not mistakenly, but to my viewpoint, mistakenly identified as nihilism within the movie. But you can, instead of focusing on the continual cycles of bereavement, if you focus on the continuing cycles of human connection, I think part of what's special about it is that it gives Ripley things to connect with. In a universe that presents itself as deep and uncaring, she still finds these moments of connection with people throughout these films. And Clemens, to me, is the last really meaningful human connection that we get to see Ripley as we know her make. And um, you know, even if it doesn't become this great love story, it was like in the vastness of space, you know, maybe they can't hear you scream, but maybe they can hear you fuck. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just want an excuse to say that. No, I, I feel like I feel like he's a he's a great character, and we get the right amount of time with him personally. I think so too. I think if we got any more, we would have cared too much. It would have been more devastating, and that would have been too much. If we got any less, like you said, then we wouldn't have cared at all. And we need to care. That's why we're still talking about these movies. They're not nihilistic to the point where none of us give a shit. Right. Like there has to be that connection and they they allow us to form that connection so that we do care. Um, So I agree. I think we got the perfect amount. He was always my favorite from this. Um, And we feel when he, he we feel his loss, 
but not so much that we're like, that's it. I'm out. You know, like we, we I mean, although I did feel that the first time I watched it, the first, um, but with like with Hicks and new, I was like kind of out. And then after I watched it again, I had time to invest. To answer the question. I, I agree that, I mean, in my heart of hearts, would I like to see him more? Yes, for sure. But this is a film about everything being taken from someone. That's what it's about. Um, this is a film about everything Ripley loved being taken from her and what she going to do when it's, when that oblivion that's stealing every joy from her has it, has her at the precipice of, of, you know, this molten vat of lead. What, what, what is she going to do? And, uh, it's, it's maddening and it's frustrating and it's devastating and it's sad. Um, but that's what this film is about. And, uh, I also realized watching David Fincher's you know, career and the films that he makes, he has historically deconstructed masculinity in most of his films. He's always broken it down. And I think Clemens is a testament to that. It, that's why Clemens is the, I think even further on in that, in that theme of soft men, um, which I hate to even say, they're just good men. They're not soft. They're just good men, you know, just like Ripley isn't she doesn't care for Newt because she's a was a mother. Ripley cares for Newt because she's a good person, and that's what good people do. And I, Clemens was just a really good person, and I think Fincher really deconstructed the idea of what men could be, um, in a beautiful way in this character. And he met his fate, um, unfortunately, but that's the story that was told. And I I feel like it works really really well, even enough to make Christian upset like it that, uh, it works it works and like i feel like it's supposed to do that to you it's supposed to it's it's an angry place that we leave like what this is what we're doing this is how we're leaving it this is the story this is what you've done after all we've been through but that's fucking life um and i know people go to movies for different reasons but i feel like with ripley's story it just works Forrest, thank you so much for coming on. It was awesome. I'm so glad we've gotten to know each other through Alien Fandom. And, um, you know, Forrest is a listener who reached out and, you know, we encourage people to do that. If you have a topic you feel particularly drawn to, um, let, let us know and maybe we can find room for an episode, you know? Yeah, and I, and I really want to encourage anyone and everyone listening to it. If you're able, you know, join up on Patreon like I did. These are hard times, but if you're able to, it's they they make it worth it and i'd like to again sincerely thank you guys for having me on and making this a great space and to kind of open up and tell these stories and share these experiences and to everyone anyone listening who might be struggling with some of the stuff that we talked about in this episode you know there's always hope and i love all of you i love everyone who's struggling thanks so much for coming on for us thank you for having me thanks everybody To find out more information about Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please go to www.perfectorganism.com. If you would like to support the show, please go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.